1976, I was kidnapped and tortured by the Garda Heavy Gang. They engaged in a criminal conspiracy to have me wrongfully charged with the robbery of the Salons mail train. Subsequently, they perjured themselves over four controversial trials. After my last trial, before the Georgia Special Criminal Court, I was sentenced to 12 years penal servitude. All Tishi and justice ministers to date have conspired to cover this up by refusing to hold a statutory impartial public inquiry. Such an inquiry is required by international law. My name is Oscar Brannock. I am an Irish writer and a human rights activist. And this is the story of the most notorious and the longest ongoing criminal case in Irish legal history. It is an upsetting and outrageous story to hear and to tell. Welcome to Police in Ireland, the podcast that seeks to capture the experiences people have with the police. I'm Dr. Vicky Conway, and I'm passionate about listening to people from all different walks of life about how they experience our police on Garda Síochána. Today, I'm joined by Oscar Brannock, a writer, a poet, a human rights activist. In the late 1970s, Oscar was, along with two others, wrongly convicted of the Salon's mail train robbery, what has been described by some as Ireland's version of the Birmingham Six case. One of the most notorious miscarriages of justice in our state, it raises many questions about aspects of the criminal justice system, from guard to brutality, to the special criminal court, and the difficulties people encounter when trying to question and challenge an institution like Angarda Síochána. I'm delighted to have Oscar join us to tell us about his experience of being policed in Ireland. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, review us on Apple, or head to patreon.com, find Tortoiseshock, and support us in bringing all of this content to you. On the 31st of March 1976, the Cork to Dublin mail train was robbed, just outside of Salence in Kildare. About £200,000 was stolen from the train. This was during a time when armed robberies of banks and money transfer units had risen dramatically, generally to fund the activities of the Republican movement. There was a lot of pressure on the state, particularly internationally, to be seen to be cracking down on Republican activities. In the immediate aftermath of this robbery, some 40 individuals were rounded up and arrested. Indeed, one of the most detailed books on this case is called Round Up the Usual Suspects. Five members of the Irish Republican Socialist Party, Oscar Brahnock, Nikki Kelly, Brian McNally, Mike Plunkett and John Fitzpatrick were charged. During the course of detention, all except Plunkett made detailed confessions, but all also emerged with extensive injuries which they stated were inflicted by Gardaí. The five would later be convicted of the robbery on the basis of these confessions. They're convicted by the Special Criminal Court, a court in which there is no jury but is instead presided over by three judges. It would take years for those convictions to be overturned and to this day, Oscar Bratnock still seeks an apology and accountability. At the outset, let me make one thing clear. My family were not prejudiced against the Gardaí nor was I. In fact, my family had an historical involvement in policing in Ireland. 
In the 17th century, police protected the Leinster Pale from marauding tribes. Whatever about that link, my own personal encounters with policing shaped my developing views and nothing else. When I was under 10 years old in the 1950s, my interaction with Gardaí consisted of hiding from a guard on a black bicycle. He was patrolling the middle-class cul-de-sac in which I lived in Dunleary, a Dublin satellite coastal town. His presence was meant to dissuade us children from playing football on the streets. Two ranking Gardaí lived in the estate and never bothered us. Much later, I found a wad of cash on the main street in Dunleary, and on the advice of my father, I handed it into the local police station. When it went unclaimed for a year and a day, I recovered it by law as mine and enjoyed spending it. It was when I was 12 years old that my next encounter with the Gardaí altered my view of them forever. Late one evening, having missed the last bus home from Dublin, I decided, in all innocence, to ask the Gardaí for help. I entered a police station close to the bus terminus in Dublin. I walked in under the entrance archway with its miniature sculptures of old helmeted Dublin Metropolitan Police officers. Excuse me, can I get a lift in the Garda car heading towards Dunleary? I asked the desk sergeant. I've missed the last bus home, they pleaded. I was asked to wait while something was arranged. Much later into the morning, I witnessed a woman complaining to the desk sergeant about being attacked by dogs. Her complaint was ignored and the Garda ridiculed her when she was gone. I recalled that upset me at the time. Hours later, when the morning papers arrived in the station, I saw a photograph of the same woman on the front page. She was being attacked by guard the dogs at the otherwise peaceful demonstration outside the US Embassy. I read that the picket was about the Cuban Missile Crisis. I was shocked how Gardy laughed, joked and ridiculed her. Other than that, they were courteous to me and drove me home. At my home, obviously ignorant of the facts, they berated my anxious mother for allowing me out so late. It was a salutary lesson for me to be very circumspect in my dealings with the Gardaí. This chimes with what we've heard in previous episodes about how even the positivity of being able to ask the Gardaí for a significant lift home can easily be overridden by a more negative experience, such as seeing how the woman was treated and how they spoke to his mother. Mixing with other children from working class estates, I often heard stories of their harassment and beatings, and that after dark, some of the areas in which they lived were no-go areas for patrolling Gardaí, but it was not my experience. So six years later, when I was 18, I took part in a civil rights march for the declaration of a housing emergency. In June 1963, two tenements collapsed in Dublin. The first on Bolton Street, killing two elderly Dubliners and wounding seven other occupants. The second on Fenian Street, ten days later, killed two children. Anger and grief was rife. Within weeks, more than 150 houses had been evacuated because of their dangerous condition. One tenement collapsed on York Street, literally moments after the final family had cleared out. An inquiry was launched by Dublin City Council and protest immediately started. Copying the tactics of Martin Luther King, we marched across O'Connell Bridge, only to find our way blocked by a large number of Gardaí, just like Salma, Alabama, I thought. So we sat down in the middle of the road and sang, We Shall Overcome, ignoring Garda requests to clear the bridge. 
The Gardaí's response was to charge feet and bludgeon us as we retreated away from the bridge. The Gardaí continued to batten us, including uninvolved shoppers up O'Connell Street. Outside the GPO, quite some distance from the bridge, I was attacked and viciously assaulted by a Garda. Violence at protests was absolutely not uncommon in this period. Some of this was linked to social changes. The teddy boys of the 1950s were frequently caught up in scuffles with the guards, but some was about deeper issues. The Dublin Unemployed Association, formed in 1953, organised numerous protests, including sit-down protests on O'Connell Bridge, which halted Dublin traffic. Baton charges and scuffles occurred. The Garda strategy was to stifle the organisation by banning marches, arresting leaders and using force on peaceful protest. Indeed, there is evidence that suggests the police use of force was widespread. On New Year's Eve 1954, when revellers spilled over onto the streets in Dublin, Garda efforts to clear them up involved a baton charge. Five people had to be treated in hospital. That was when I started writing and being published in the letters to the editor pages in Irish newspapers. I wrote about the attack and subsequently other social issues. Afterwards, I became heavily involved in the housing action campaigns across the state. The Dublin Housing Action Committee was an activist group formed in 1962 to protest against the lack of affordable housing in Dublin. It began with pickets and escalated to direct action of resisting evictions and occupying houses. Numerous members were imprisoned and clashes with Gardaí often became violent. I was elected secretary to the National Coordinating Body. National reports of Garda harassment grew with time. Locally, when we squatted families in vacant properties, I always informed the Garda and the media of what had occurred so that they would not consider the families as burglars. I pointed out legally it was a civil matter. The Garda did not interfere in my area in Dunleary. In fact, one ranking Garda had the unusual response to families who sought his help from evictions. I can't do anything. Maybe the Housing Action Group can help, he would tell families. Following a Housing Action march in Derry, the North erupted into mass-scale civil disobedience. As a freelance journalist, I went north to Belfast, hoping to get across to Derry, where a large section of the population had locked out the police from their area. The so-called Battle of the Bogside was raging. Daily and overnight, the two groups, that is the police and the inhabitants, bombarded each other with petrol bombs and CS gas across city barricades. I heard of riots on the Falls Road in Belfast and crossed the city to cover the story. That was when I witnessed police assisting civilians in attacking the Falls Road unprovoked in a coordinated operation. I ran for my life as the advanced machine gunning civilians of burning houses as they progressed. Some people were shot around me. I thought I would be killed. The police's armoured cars fired into the tall Divis Street flats, killing a child. All this coloured my view of police in general. The next day I witnessed the first early morning raids as internment without trial was introduced. I helped the inhabitants collect their possessions from the entirety of Bombay Street, which had been burned to the ground overnight in a sectarian attack. What followed across the north was the largest mass movement of population in Ireland since World War II, as civilians from nationalist areas fled across the borders south. By 1976, at the time of my kidnapping and torture by Gardaí, 
I was conversant with my legal rights and advised others of theirs. I was a known public speaker and activist against the introduction of Jury's Special Criminal Court and on all political and social issues of the time, women's rights, travellers' rights, housing and unemployment campaigns, anti-apartheid issues, civil rights issues, north and south, and the budding peace process were all issues I was heavily involved in. I was then a member of a new All-Ireland legal and registered political party, the Irish Republican Socialist Party. It was a purely political party. As a member of the RSP, I was practicing my democratic and constitutional right to campaign for peaceful political change. In fact, one could argue that I was exercising what is every citizen's duty. At this time, I was also a practicing freelance journalist. I produced leaflets and local bulletins, articles and letters to the media in a variety of pen names. I was also the editor of a national newspaper, The Starry Plough. This was a great opportunity for me to learn journalism inside out. I wrote many of the news stories and editorials, took photographs, drew cartoons and illustrations, planned content, designed layout, and actually physically laid out the paper each month. This was in the years long before computers. Stories of Garda harassment and assaults flooded my entry. In all my impartial journalism, I was guided by my father, a respected writer, prolific journalist and editor of one of the main Irish daily newspapers. Over time, I became aware that my parents' phone was tapped and that we were under both overt and covert surveillance. It seemed to be the practice across the state to tap phones and monitor mail and the movements of many journalists and political activists. We now know that surveillance was not unusual at that time. In 1982, it emerged that senior journalists at the Irish Times had had their phones bugged under an order from the Minister for Justice. One former special branch member I previously interviewed spoke of how even conversations between solicitors and clients were bugged. In our work, the cases were big, he said. The commissioner would have been on the phone every hour. Usually the superintendent would know. That was as high as knowledge and approval went. A neighbour informed us that he had been requested by Garley to spy on all of us. He refused, stating to the guard, I wish all my neighbours were as considerate as the products. He subsequently wondered, he told me, if he was now being monitored by Garley himself. On another occasion, an alleged local petty thief was blackmailed to join the local housing group to act as an agent provocateur or face jail time. But he informed us and we set up the Garley by tape recording their threats. Unless they left him alone, we promised to provide the media with a copy of the tape. They left him alone thereafter, but always we had to be cognizant of malicious intent by Gardaí. Often they stopped and searched our members and their families, raided their homes and visited their schools or jobs, all to intimidate our members and to try and isolate us from family and friends. I wrote numerous letters of complaint to Garda commissioners. By 1976, across Britain, the North and the South, the authorities were involved in torturing activists and civilians and spying and bombings. Historical records show this. The war with Republicans and nationalist civilians was in full operation. Prisons across all three jurisdictions were full. Internment in the North had been tried and failed. General Frank Kitson's counterinsurgency war with pseudo gangs and assassination gangs were operational across Ireland, North and South. One of those pseudo-gangs was the Garda Heavy Gang, and they targeted the RSP and me. The context is important here. 
The Troubles had begun in 1969. Those early years were violent. Starting in 1970 with the death of Dick Fallon, a dozen Gardaí were, over the course of the next two decades, killed by Republicans. The Offences Against the State Act 1972 brought back the Special Criminal Court, which denies suspects their right to a trial by jury of their peers. Garda powers of arrest and detention were broadened and made it possible for the word of a chief superintendent to be sufficient evidence for the crime of membership of such an organisation. Following the killing of the British ambassador in 1976, a state of emergency was declared and Gardaí were given the power to detain people for seven days without charge later that year. There was intense pressure to secure convictions against the IRA. Gardaí soon found themselves being asked to do anything possible to get those convictions without accountability for those means. Quite soon, allegations emerged of a heavy gang operating within Angada Shiakona. This was supposed to be a unit of men that would use violent means to extract confessions. It received public notoriety in February 1977, nearly a year after Oscar's arrest, when the Irish Times ran a week-long series of front-page articles exposing the gang, with headlines like Gardaí using North-style brutality in interrogation techniques. Heavy gang used new act to intensify pressure on suspects. It was alleged to be very systematic, with the same names and methods being mentioned in a number of cases. Ireland had committed under the Sunningdale Agreement of 1973 to establish both a police authority and an independent complaints mechanism, but this did not happen. There was no independent way of investigating Garda wrongdoing. In 1975-76, to 76, there had been 58 allegations of assault by Gardaí, 22 of which were referred to the DPP by Gardaí, 8 of which went to court, none of which resulted in a prosecution. I panicked when I was roughly bundled into a car by a number of men on March the 31st, 1976, in the centre of Dublin. Although they muttered they were Gardaí, loyalist assassination squads were active on both sides of the border at the time, targeting Republicans but I relaxed when I was shown guard ID. I had just left the newspaper I produced with the printers and was returning to my office with my lunch when I was arrested. I demanded to know why I was being arrested. I was told it was to do with the Salins mail train robbery, which had occurred early that morning. I thought it ludicrous and demanded access to an aid solicitor as it was locked up in the bridewell. At the time, it was common practice for Republicans to be arrested, detained for 48 hours and then released without charge. My custody was extended for a further 24 hours. No solicitor was contacted. I was not questioned and I was released having been locked up for 48 hours. Over the weekend, political and media speculation pointed to the provisional IRA as being behind the train robbery, the largest in the history of the state at the time. Over that weekend, Taoiseach Liam Cosgrave and other ministers communicated. The Gardaí were ordered to focus on the RSP. 30 to 40 detectives met in Dublin Castle to carry out the operation. 18 people were targeted for arrest. This was allegedly on the back of an uncorroborated so-called tip from one Garda. All in all, over 40 people were detained or arrested. They were all either IRSP members or their family and friends. Such a large number of members of the Provisional Republican Movement were never arrested before, during or after 1976. The roundup was the largest civilian roundup in Ireland since World War II, directed solely against the RSP. My home was not raided. I was not on any arrest list. 
nor could I be legally detained, having been already arrested the previous week in relation to the Salons robbery. Instead, I was kidnapped from the Starry Plough newspaper office and brought to the Bridewell and held incommunicado. My demands for a solicitor went ignored. Unlike what we see on TV, you don't actually have a right to have a solicitor in the interview room with you in Ireland. It's been allowed since 2014, but it's not a right. So what Oscar was looking for was to have consultations with his solicitor before and in between interviews. This would serve many purposes. The solicitor could take the case to court if it was believed that detention was unlawful. He could advise Oscar on what his rights were. He could help him decide the best strategy for interview. He could ensure that he was being treated okay and address any other legal needs. This is considered a pretty essential constitutional right for anyone being held in a guard station. And so denying this right would be very problematic. Again, I demanded the cause of my arrest. The Salon's train robbery, they said. Unaware of the mass roundup, I expected to be released in 48 hours, if not before. No one will want to join your party by the time we're finished with you, threatened the detective in my interview. I insisted on a solicitor. You have no fucking rights under the Offence Against State Act, I was told during my second interview. Again, I insisted on a named solicitor. My custody was extended for a further 24 hours. Similar interactions followed until late that night, early morning. I woke in my cell to sounds of screaming from inside the bridewell. The loud, frightening screams of someone pleading and in pain were sporadic and continued into the night. Later, I was led from my cell by guard the jailer. I hoped perhaps that my solicitor had arrived, but I did not know he had never been summoned. Waiting detectives led me down steps in the Bridewell jail section. It led to the district court. I guessed I was about to be charged with something. If so, I thought I would get bail and soon be released. When I saw the gate and the tunnel was closed, my heart sank and I expected the worst. Guardies surrounded me and began by pulling my coat off me and throwing it to the ground. In the dim tunnel light, they insisted I had robbed the train, repeating the accusations in a sing-song voice, alleging others had said I did. I denied it and demanded a solicitor. They slapped and punched and beat me for some time, always with the sing-song accusations repeating. They were all around me, beating me. I accounted for my movements. I said I was at home with my wife at the time of the robbery, which I was. They threatened to arrest my wife if I mentioned her again. The beatings, curses, shouts, threats all continued until I was led out of the tunnel to a locker room in the adjoining police station. There were many more detectives in the locker room. I was thrown from one to the other as I, as I was assaulted and battered, punched, kicked, slapped, threatened and shouted at. My screams of my innocence and for access to a solicitor only resulted in increased attacks. At some stage, disorientated, with difficulty breathing and pain, I said, okay, I will say it was there. Pen and paper were produced at a nearby table, but I could not hold the pen as my hand was shaking. I was in deep shock. The guardian said they would write the statement. They waited. Right, I was there. That's all I can say because I don't know what happened. I shouted in exasperation and panic. They went berserk, threw the table aside and laid into me once more. I was seeing stars at this stage, being beaten, kicked and punched. I was being thumped about the head. I couldn't breathe, had difficulty swallowing, and my head was spinning. This continued for some time as I was thrown from one detective to the other, beaten, cursed, shouted at. I was threatened with more brutality over the next week if necessary. 
or until I signed a statement. Seven-day detention had been enacted into law, they falsely claimed. I could hear shouts and screams from other parts of the bridewell. Confessions can be compelling, compelling evidence of guilt for the jury. Dr Sinead Ring, assistant professor at the School of Law in NUI Maynooth, is an expert in evidence law. Once a jury hears evidence of a confession, it's, you know, the the likelihood of a guilty verdict increases exponentially. Um, People do make false confessions. Um, People can confess because they're under, they're feeling under pressure. And that pressure might come from the investigating officers. Or it might actually be more nebulous than that. It might actually come from the situation of being in the police station. Um, They could be pressurised into confessing. And we have a whole range of actions by the police that may result in a false confession. Some of them may be, you know, the lower level of um, inducements. And then others are the more um, extreme forms of uh, pressure everything ranging from intimidation to torture. You could have threats against your family members, for example. Um, Like, for example, the Guildford Four um, in the 1970s in England, they were uh, wrongly uh, convicted of pub bombings in in the mid-70s. Birmingham Six were convicted, um, a famous miscarriage of justice, um, convicted of the Birmingham pub bombings that killed 21 people and injured 120. 82 people. So, you know, in both of those cases, which were extremely high profile uh, miscarriages of justice in the 70s and 80s, the police in question in, in both of those cases coerced the confessions out of the suspects effectively. So, in recognition of the fact that people make false confessions, judges and the courts have developed standards around the need for confessions to be voluntary. This is a really important term, which, as we'll see next week, went to the heart of Oscar's trial and conviction. So, of course, a judge in a trial has to decide whether or not to allow the the confession to go before the jury and they have to decide whether or not it's admissible. And so, for example, if a confession was um, obtained as a result of torture, um, that would mean it was clearly not voluntary and should not be admitted. But one of the problems was that in the absence of recordings, in the absence of any kind of audio recordings, there was no way of telling whether or not the confession was uh, true or false. And so you've got this conflict of testimony really between the what the defence is saying and what the uh, police officer is saying. So the, the scandals of the Guildford Four and the Birmingham Six miscarriages of justice really led to re- huge reforms in the United Kingdom and eventually here as well. And one of the major ones is the um, introduction of the recording um, of interviews with suspects. There needs to be records kept to prove that the, the recording is comprehensive and that there are gaps in the recording because, of course, there is still a potential for... Uh, things to happen when the recording isn't running, essentially. What actually constitutes a voluntary statement was set down in a 1914 case of R versus Ibrahim. It had not been obtained from him either by fear of prejudice or hope of advantage, exercised or held out by a person in authority. This clearly predates Oscar's case and it is hardly revisionist to expect the same standard of treatment for him. 
nothing has changed essentially since 1914. Um, I mean, there have been minor changes to it, but the essence of it is that we need to make sure that the in any in any trial, we need to make sure that the evidence that's going before the jury, presented by the prosecution to the jury in the hope of uh, persuading them beyond a reasonable doubt that the person before them, the defendant, is guilty of the crime charged. We need to be sure that that person is being tried in a fair way and we need to be as sure as we can be that the evidence that's being put before the jury is reliable. It's important to say as well that in Ireland the test is subjective, so it's about the effect of the police officer's actions on the person themselves. So if the person has been in trouble many times with the law, the court will take a different view of that. We're going to require a higher threshold, I suppose, for saying that the statement was taken in a manner that was improper, that um, means it's involuntary. So the courts really look at the context and that's really the spirit of Ibrahim is what's talked about um, a lot in the case law is that idea that we're not going to have very strict rules, although there are um, rules and regulations around the treatment of people in custody and the treatment of someone who's being interviewed. Um, but the main thing is that they are not being pressured into it and they're not being induced into it. And that's a subjective test. So, for example, in the Card of Three case, that involved the conviction of three men um, for the murder of a sex worker, um, you know, and and those uh, confessions were extracted following hours and hours of questioning and repeated questioning. So even the idea of repeated questioning can be found to be improper. Which is the thing. I mean, if any of us sit and imagine you're in a police station, you're terrified and someone keeps asking you the exact same question hundreds of times as happened in the Cardiff case. Yeah. I just, I think it's really important people put themselves in those positions, imagine, you know, how long could you yeah. keep saying, no, I didn't do it, you know? Yeah. The right to silence, the presumption of innocence, voluntary confessions. This might all sound like legal intricacies, but it all comes back to a very basic point. The state, when it decides to suspect you for a criminal offence, has a wealth of power at its disposal. It has the police and all their skills and tools, It has expertise like forensics or handwriting. It has the calibre of the state's lawyers. And it has laws which enable it to do its job. And all that can be used to deprive you of your liberty. The average citizen cannot match that in any way. So what becomes key is creating some equality of arms, a balancing of the scales. So safeguards are put in place to ensure that all this power isn't abused like a right to see a doctor or a lawyer or the rules on voluntariness of confessions or the right to silence. Every person, as you know, is presumed to be innocent until proved guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And this golden thread, as it's called, that runs through the criminal law really means that somebody must be treated as if they're innocent all the way through from day one all the way up to the end of the trial when the jury finds the person guilty, if they do so. The presumption of innocence is underpinning this right to silence, which is underpinning this idea of voluntariness. The three of them are all connected up and they're connected to the idea that a person is 
entitled to their liberty and they're entitled to freedom from interference um, in their lives by the state. They kept repeating a list of names they wanted me to repeat back to them as being present at the robbery. The torture continued. Okay, I'll sign, I said at some stage. They wrote out the statement, which was not true, and I agreed to sign it. It inculpated me alone and no one else. I was in fear of my life at this stage. In my mind, I knew the statement did not solve any crime, did not lead to any money being recovered. They knew I would resort to the media and human rights groups as soon as I got bail. I believed they would kill me to cover up their brutality and corruption. I did not sign with my normal signature, nor the correct spelling of my name. This was the last ditch attempt on my part to show that the statement was not voluntary. Other detectives entered the locker room then and tried to get me to repeat my alleged participation verbally and to implicate others. I noticed an open window in the locker room and thought of jumping out of it in a suicide bid, but I knew it would not kill me and would possibly lead to increased torture. My father was Irish, but my mother was of Basque German descent. She had spent time in Nazi Germany in the early days of World War II before she managed to escape to Madrid. She told me when she was interrogated by the Gestapo in 1942 in Germany that she was better treated than I was by the Gardaí and the Irish state in Dublin in 1976. As Oscar stated at the outset, his story is both difficult to tell and hear. What he is saying here is that the Garda treatment was so bad that he considered suicide rather than continuing. This was not an isolated experience. In one of the cases reported by the Irish Times, the detainee ended a six-hour interrogation by jumping out of the window in a suicide bid. I'm not sure any of us can put ourselves in that position, but I wanted to pause to really think about what that means, about what you'd have to be enduring to consider that. That ending your life will be better than continuing to be interrogated by police. And there's no revisionism going on here. Standards at the time were clear. He should not have been subjected to violence while in police custody. Any statement should have been voluntary and he should have had access to a solicitor. I told them I would repeat what was in the statement, but that it was not true and that I had been beaten. Later, I was returned to my cell. And my mind was that Gardy had repeatedly mentioned filling in the gaps later. I took this to mean they wanted me to implicate others and that the torture would recommence until I did. Fearful I would not be able to stop myself from incriminating innocent men, I considered and planned hanging myself for myself. The arrival of a solicitor sent in by my family probably saved my life. The comment about filling in the gaps is an interesting one. A number of convictions in Ireland, right up until the 1990s, were overturned when it was revealed that Gardaí had added comments and sentences to statements after they had been signed by an accused. Handwriting experts confirm this. This is one of the prompts that led to the audio-visual recording of interviews at the end of the 20th century, something which had started in England in the mid-80s. I was released from the bribe as my 48 hours was up. Then I was immediately kidnapped again. I was literally punch drunk at this stage, not knowing whether I was coming or going, mentally exhausted and drawing on my last reserves of strength. My legal team took my case to the High Court in a habeas corpus application, 
following medical evidence that I had been beaten and might be suffering from concussion, the High Court sent me to hospital for observation overnight. On the way back to the High Court the following morning, I was illegally arrested outside the hospital, this despite being under the protection of the High Court. The High Court ordered my immediate release, but I was then immediately rearrested outside the High Court and formally charged with robbery and brought before the District Court. This was my seventh detention in as many days. In court, the Garthi wanted me to return to the Bridewell, but I insisted my solicitor object and prevent any more so-called interrogations. Instead, I was sent to Mountjoy Prison, and the Garthi gave an undertaking to the court that I would not be interviewed again. The next day, I met other IRSP members who had been similarly tortured, some worse than I. Six of us were charged with robbery. It later transpired that out of the 40 detained, 11 people had been severely tortured. The Garthi objected to bail, but when the bruises had dissipated some weeks later, we were released on bail from Ireland's top security prison, Port Leisha Jail. Our passports were confiscated and we had to sign on at our local guard stations weekly. Immediately on release, we informed the media and human rights groups what had happened. We also instituted civil actions against Gardaí and the state to bring what had occurred before a jury and the public. Across the national and international media, legal, social, educational and community organisations, trade unions and human rights organisations, such as Amnesty International, all called for an immediate inquiry. It fell on deaf ears. The state cover-up began, and it continues to this day. It's dizzying listening to the arrests, re-arrests, hospital visits, detention and prison. One can only begin to imagine what it felt like. Amnesty International conducted a mission to Ireland in the months after these allegations surfaced, and its report to government was highly critical of Angarda Siakana. It investigated 28 cases and concluded that a significant number of people have been ill-treated while in custody. I'm going to read a bit of the report now. Allegations common to every case examined are that the victims were at times beaten and punched, knocked or thrown against walls or furniture, kneed in the stomach and kicked. It's also commonly alleged that they were pulled or swung by their hair, had their arms twisted behind their backs while they were punched. They were spread-eagled against a wall and had their legs kicked apart so that they fell on the ground. In five cases, detained persons alleged they were beaten with objects. In a number of cases, suspects alleged they were deprived of sleep, food and drink throughout the interrogation. There is evidence that the type of interrogation methods described were undertaken in order to induce arrested persons to make incriminating statements or confessions. The existence of the heavy gang has always been denied by the state. In my own research, I've interviewed a lot of retired Gardaí who policed in Ireland in the 1970s and 80s. Some deny the existence of the gang. Some describe being deeply uncomfortable when the gang turned up at their station, and one or two told of being in the gang. One retired detective I spoke to told me how he would try and find out something about an individual that they could use against them. He recalled one case where he found the detainee was claustrophobic and shoved him in a tall metal locker for 20 minutes until he confessed. And at the same time that the state was denying the heavy gang existed or that any accountability was required, it was taking the UK to the European Court of Human Rights for the torture of Irish citizens in police stations in Belfast in a case known as the Hooded Men. It's difficult to understand how the state could maintain those two positions, but I argue it's part of that compromise I mentioned. 
The state was under intense pressure to secure results against Republicans, demanded the Garda achieve them, and turned a blind eye to how it did so. There's a twinning of both political control and a failure to implement systems of accountability that has haunted us as a state ever since. The heavy gang is said to have continued in operation until the mid-1980s, until its involvement in the Kerry Babies case sparked public outcry. In next week's episode, part two of this story, we'll hear about the various trials to which Oscar and his co-accused were subjected in front of the controversial Special Criminal Court. We'll discuss what this all meant for him and his family, the impact of all of this on policing in Ireland and his continued calls for justice. We're grateful to Oscar for taking part and I also thank Dr Sinead Ring for contributing. Big thanks to my producers Tony and Brian and please go support this work over at patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack and follow us on Twitter at Policed Podcast. Podcast.